Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Dr. Douglas Shari. He is the director of cognitive neurology at Ohio State University. In about 25 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend sits down with Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther and Rena Schack the newly appointed director of the city's Office of Violence Prevention. There's also information about the train derailment in East Palestine, the effort to increase the number of defibrillators available to people, and an update on what's coming next following the guilty verdict for former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder in his racketeering trial. And in about 45 minutes, I'll wrap up the program talking with the mayor of Athens, Steve Patterson, about issues his city is facing. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Dr. Douglas Shari, who is the Director of Cognitive Neurology at Ohio State University. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for talking to us. We talked to you uh, sometime last year about a study that was going on at the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at OSU. Can you tell us about the center? Oh, certainly. We have a large, uh, do a lot of clinical research. Uh, So this is uh, research on individuals to try to find better diagnostic ways and treatments for people with cognitive disorders. So this would be like um, people that might have dementia, memory loss, Alzheimer's, uh, things like that. And so the the center uh, deals with research for those areas. Uh, It also has a large education component. So we have a a fellow that we train, we train residents, et cetera, to learn more about these uh, disorders. And the whole uh, realm of dementia is fascinating and frightening at the same time. It seems really complicated because it seems like there's a lot of different forms of dementia. Yes. So um, the brain is very complex, and uh, there's lots of things that can make it go wrong. And dementia just basically means that the brain's not working well uh, like it used to. And so you could have dementia because you've had a couple of strokes in your brain or you had head trauma or you have this thing called Alzheimer's. These are degenerative dementias that can cause cognitive issues. Or maybe you're on toxins or chemotherapy or or, uh, opiates or uh, maybe you have sleep apnea or your kidney or liver may not be working well to cause toxins to go to the brain. So many, many causes of thinking problems which could result in uh, dementia. And it seems like more often than not, anytime somebody, especially an older person, begins to show some symptoms of, uh, you know, what some, some people might call feebleness or, you know, just sort of slowing down or becoming forgetful, a word like Alzheimer's begins to pop up. And I guess that may not necessarily be what's happening, right? It's a very common, you know, if you're an older individual. If you're a younger individual, it's much less common, so you should be looking for other causes. Certainly should be thinking about it because it's not a, certainly not a rare condition, uh, but you're right, there could be many other things. You shouldn't also just assume it's going to be something uh, like that, that you are doomed to get Alzheimer's, that there may be many other treatable or reversible conditions that uh, your thinking or memory loss could be related to other than Alzheimer's. And even if it turns out to be Alzheimer's, um, the key to all these conditions, any time you have problems with thinking or memory, the key is to get evaluated early because the treatments we have, all of them, even for Alzheimer's, work much better the earlier you start treatment. 
Talking with Dr. Douglas Shari, Director of Cognitive Neurology at Ohio State. Well, you know, in recent years, we've been hearing terms and diseases that I think a lot of us didn't know. For instance, with Bruce Willis, the actor, aphasia and frontotemporal dementia. And then with Robin Williams, it was dementia with Lewy bodies. Can you talk about any of those? Uh, Sure. So um, just like Alzheimer's, those two things that you mentioned, uh, frontotemporal dementia, uh, often with this aphasia, this language condition, uh, as well as dementia with Lewy bodies, they're both conditions where the brain builds up uh, abnormally, um, produces more of these proteins, which are normally in the brain, but they're overproduced and they're toxic and they start killing nerve cells. And so depending on where these proteins are building up in Alzheimer's, they they start out as amyloid and tau proteins. They start out in the memory circuit, so you often have memory problems early on. In the frontotemporal condition, like with Bruce Willis, and it hits the language area, that's a different part of the brain, and these proteins will then accumulate and build up in areas that control language. And then in, like, Lewy body dementia, different proteins, either alpha synuclein and those types, will build up in areas that can control your motor skills. So they have trouble with coordination and, and balance, you know, falls are more common, uh, and then also visual spatial. So oftentimes it will be in the areas of visual processing. Uh, and so depending on where these proteins are, are building up and accumulating too much and are toxic and it hits those parts of the brain, it will influence and impact that part of the brain that uh, these proteins are, are accumulating. I guess one of the big uh, goals in the medical field is obviously would be to find a cure for these diseases, but also the earlier that they can possibly be spotted, the better chance to at least head them off or delay their effects, right? There's no question. We don't have any cures for these degenerative conditions. These are the ones where the proteins are building up and causing problems that are worsening over time, progressing, if you will. So we don't have cures for these things, but we do have treatments that were being that are being studied and some treatments that are symptomatically help uh, the individual slow down the course a little bit. As I said, there's other um, clinical trials and things like that that we're looking at right now that are designed to try to find, you know, better treatments, find medications that might help uh, slow down and, you know, eventually we are hoping to actually make a large impact with these disorders so that you slow it down or reduce its effect so much that you can really impact the patient's uh, quality of life. Are there uh, any indications for people younger, you know, I'm thinking in their 40s or 50s who maybe don't show the, the classic symptoms for another 10 or 20 years or longer, can there be possibly ways that people walk or move or talk or think or laugh, you know, any kind of early symptoms that some folks might show? Well, it's a, it's a good, excellent question that you have because um, we're, of course, looking, always looking for the earliest symptoms, uh, just like, you know, if you have a cancer, the first symptoms of a cancer or something, so you can get it early and, and have more potential treatment. The same is true for these degenerative conditions. Uh, what is really 
uh, advantageous, I think, for some of these degenerative conditions that these proteins that build up start building up long before you have symptoms, long before you have language problems or memory problems or visual spatial problems or motor control problems. And we are now beginning to be able to identify these in the brain, either through PET scans, these are imaging studies, or through spinal fluid biomarkers. And for some conditions, we're really good at that. So for example, Alzheimer's disease, uh, we can see these amyloid and tau proteins build up in the brain or in the spinal fluid, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 years before you have your first symptoms, before you forget your keys for the first time. And so the great advantage that we have is that um, we would be able to identify uh, people that might develop these conditions and perhaps do something before it ravages the brain. Talking with Dr. Douglas Shawry, uh, he's the Director of Cognitive Neurology at Ohio State University. When people begin to show their symptoms, a lot of times, uh, uh, from what I understand, they're aware of what's coming, right? I mean, President Reagan wrote about the sunset of his life, and Robin Williams, who unfortunately uh, decided to commit suicide after his diagnosis of dementia with Lewy bodies. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it? Well, sure. So, um, yeah, so it's a gradual, these proteins very gradually build up. And so it's not just one day like a stroke or, you know, head trauma or something like that. And it's a, so the whole um, characteristics of these conditions where the proteins build up, it's, it's a slow process. It occurs over years that they would have these uh, progression symptoms. So you do know and family members know and you can tell I'm just not thinking well or I'm just not talking well. Now, actually, in terms of Robin Williams, he was not diagnosed prior to his death. And one of the thought was that because no one was able to come up with a reason, he thought perhaps that he was just losing his mind in some non-specific type of way. Um, and some people think that's probably why he may have decided to commit suicide. No one can tell what's wrong. And maybe I'm just losing it. I don't want to go out this way. Um, I want to make my own choice, perhaps. So. Um, those are sort of what was hinted, you know, with his, uh, when his family were interviewed. So he was only diagnosed and said, ah, oh, this is uh, dementia with Lewy bodies uh, with the autopsy. So oh. they finally figured out, oh, yep, there it is. Here's the proteins. That's what he had. Uh, so that again goes back to the difficulty with sometimes diagnosing these people and getting it correct from the very beginning because sometimes the symptoms can be tricky. They're subtle. They're they start off very slowly, they will progress, so there's plenty of time to think that maybe something else is doing it. That's interesting. You know, in light of Bruce Willis's diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia, I was watching some videos on YouTube of people who suffer from that, and, and some of it is truly bizarre. You've got a clinical person interviewing somebody with this disease, asking them questions. They could be asking them about the weather, and the person will give an answer about the refrigerator in the kitchen that has absolutely nothing to do with the question and just be answering as if they're in a completely different conversation than what the clinician is asking them. Yes. Yeah, particularly with the language, you know, you have trouble both with sometimes getting the words out or some people have more trouble with the uh, 
comprehension issue. All of this must just make it fascinating and yet complex and frustrating at the same time for somebody in your position. Well, it's um, that's why we have uh, such uh, a good uh, education program. So um, we teach physicians and providers uh, how to diagnose these conditions. Uh, we're developing better treatments uh, to see or better diagnostic methods, I should say, better biomarkers to see if we can um, help improve uh, ways to diagnose earlier. The last time we talked to you, there was a, a study that you were doing about short-term memory. Are there any things going on at the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders that uh, folks can enroll in or, or find out more about? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we have over 30 recruiting studies right now at our center, um, anywhere from people that have you know, before they have symptoms, but maybe have amyloid in their in their pet or CSF, to people with mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's. Uh, we have Alzheimer's studies. We have dementia with Lewy body studies. Uh, we have biomarker studies. We're doing studies with um, behaviors, finding better treatments for behaviors. We're just starting right now the first in human uh, trial for a growth factor that we're injecting into the brains of people with Alzheimer's to see if that may uh, help. So uh, if there's any interest in uh, doing, uh, helping others and getting some of these treatments out earlier, we're sort of blessed in, um, with the altruism of people that are willing to participate in clinical trials, and uh, we would be happy to um, talk to them about options uh, for clinical trials if they're interested. Okay, and that's again through the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at Ohio State. I did want to ask one kind of general question. Some people are good at recognizing faces, but not names, and other people are better at remembering names, but not necessarily faces. Is there any connection between those two, or is one better than the other? I wouldn't say one's better than the other. Uh, It often is often is related to what the talent of the individual is. So. Some people are, are very good with one or the other, and uh, maybe some are not good with either one. Um, so it's pretty normal as you get older to forget people's names. So it's not a big, um, as big a concern. Uh, we're a little slower processing as we get older. We may not come up with a person's name right away, and so that comes across as forgetting, uh, you know, their name momentarily. But but no, I think that is more suggestive of just uh, your normal talents, whether you are a better face person or you're a better uh, name person. And when it comes to Alzheimer's or some of these uh, dementia disorders, is it a certainty at this point that it is uh, the, this plaque that's building up, or is, is there any chance that it could be a virus? That I remember reading some articles years ago about some doctors that were concerned about the possibility, at least like during open brain surgery that it could be contagious because it might be a virus or something? So there's no evidence that things like Alzheimer's are related to a virus. I mean, people are still looking at those things. I won't say there's zero chance anything is possible, but people have been looking at this for Alzheimer's, for example, for, for many, many years, and we're not seeing like these viral particles in the brain after they die, and it's mostly genetic uh, that uh, will have you increase the risk of building up these proteins. That definitely is known for sure, the genetic risk for Alzheimer's, and that's also 
true for some of these other degenerative conditions, although less so for Lewy body and frontotemporal conditions. And uh, we're just sort of investigating exactly uh, how it builds up. And we do know that the inflammatory system is involved. Uh, these toxic little proteins cause your immune system to sort of rev up, and that doesn't help the brain either. And so we're looking at ways to sort of inhibit the immune system as it, as it impacts these uh, proteins. So there's lots of uh, data that suggests immune system, the proteinopathies, these proteins building up, and genetics, but very little to suggest an infectious process. And as knowledge increases and, and uh, more is known about these, perhaps more cases will be spotted, which would, would you know, indicate that it's more prevalent. But is there any indication that people are getting it more often than maybe they did 50 years ago or 100 years ago? I think that the prevalence is the same, but it's related more to, I think, more people have these conditions now because people are living longer. Mm -hmm. And this is a disease mostly of older age people, so it increases every decade of life until you get to about 100. So, you know, you more percentage of people with 80 uh, years of age or older have it than 70, and uh, there's more with 90 if you're in your 90s, et cetera. So because we're doing so much better with medical uh, care and, you know, heart care and diabetes care and cholesterol care, that uh, people are living longer, uh, don't die early on of their heart attacks or things like that. And so then we're just seeing more people that eventually get these brain disorders. So I think that it probably is just about the same as it ever was. We're just seeing more because people are living longer. Just a moment or two to go with Dr. Douglas Shari from the direct. He's the director of uh, cognitive neurology at Ohio State University. Well, this is something that, you know, it's frightening in the sense that, you know, if this starts to happen to you or if you begin to realize it's happening to you, you know, there, you have no control over something like this and it, and it would seemingly be hitting you out of the blue. What sort of advice would you give to a family or an individual who maybe has just been recently diagnosed with some sort of dementia or fears that they may have it? Well, the biggest thing I would suggest is if you or a loved one, a person, a family member, a spouse who knows you well, has noticed a change over the last year that you're just not quite as sharp, something is, is uh, progressed, something is worse in terms of memory or thinking, really it's very prudent to get into your doctor to get it checked out because the treatments that we have for these conditions are so much better and so much more options uh, to treat early on, like you would think of any medical condition, uh, than if you wait. Or you say, well, I, I really don't even want to think about it. I'll just put it off or I won't mention anything. Uh, that's not the correct response. We should uh, check it out early get in to see your physician, and as we're developing more disease-modifying therapies, there were two that just came out that the FDA approved so far for Alzheimer's disease. We're still waiting to see if insurers and Medicare will pay for it, but we are getting much better treatments, and they only work if you get um, identified early. So uh, check in with your primary care doctor. Uh, you can take the uh, SAGE test at home, the one that we developed at Ohio State, the pen and paper test, uh, to get an um, assessment of your current thinking. Uh, but just check yourself out, get in to 
see your physician and uh, evaluate it as soon as you can. Do you see at some point a cure for some of this, or are they connected enough that if you know a cure is found for Alzheimer's, will it also likely be effective against Lewy bodies or Parkinson's or some of these other ailments? Uh, it's, unfortunately, it's unlikely that it would uh, because there are different proteins that build up. So you would have to, if you're targeting these toxic proteins, you probably would have to have a little change in target. But some of the same uh, methods might be usable from one condition to another. You know, know how to target these toxic proteins, know how to, um, you know, identify them and get them out of your uh, body or out of your brain, I should say. So definitely we borrow, uh, you know, techniques and, and ways to deal with things, especially with the immune system, you know, with uh, inflammatory medic- with inflammatory disorders, multiple sclerosis, cancer. We, we all borrow from each other to try to find the best um, methods to try to attack the uh, disease that we're studying, in this case, you know, uh, dementia degenerative dementia conditions. Dr. Douglas Shari joining us. He is the Director of Cognitive Neurology at Ohio State. Anything else you'd like to add? I think that's basically the main things. If you notice something, get in to be seen because we're developing, uh, there's some conditions with the memory or thinking that are very treatable, reversible. You don't want to miss those. And even some of these degenerative conditions uh, that tend to progress, um, there's clinical trials and there's new treatments that are being developed that would work better um, the earlier you're diagnosed. So that would be my uh, plea to everyone is to get in and, and be evaluated. Okay, Dr. Douglas Shari, thanks so much for your time and the information today. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. The mayor on crime in his state of the city, Andrew Ginther, remains optimistic. We speak to him and his new hire, who has one clear mission. This preventable accident has put a scarlet letter on our town. A face to the disaster. Congress hears from the people who live near East Palestine, and it's the governor this morning with a clear message for the railroad responsible. It was their train, their tracks. Their accident, they're responsible for this tragedy. And how an energy company forced to offload power plants could be rebuying one just across state lines. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Clay Gordon from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thanks for joining me for this week's edition of Face the State. I'm Clay Gordon in for Tracy Townsend. We start this week with the ongoing battle over crime. While the violence is down in the city of Columbus, there's been no shortage of it. Fighting crime is the top priority of the Columbus mayor, Andrew Ginther, who made the topic the kingpin of his re 
election year state of the city address. My top three priorities are neighborhoods, neighborhoods, neighborhoods. And that starts with making them safer. Although we faced our fair share of challenges on this front, I'm proud of the fact that we have a record of success. We will not rest. We will not yield. We will not stand down. We will continue to do everything we can to reduce gun violence in our community. Data compiled by 10TV's Crime Tracker team shows the decrease in violence. Columbus ended 2022 with 140 homicides, a 32% decrease from the previous record-breaking year. Other violent crimes were also down. But despite the decreases, one thing has risen, violence among teens, and it's concerning for the mayor. But we simply can't arrest our way out of crime. We have to do all that we can to interrupt the cycle of violence and, if possible, stop it from forming in the first place. This morning, we're taking a deeper dive into those crime prevention plans. Here's Tracy Townsend, moderator and host of Face the State. Thank you and good morning. We are talking with Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther and the newly appointed director of the city's Office of Violence Prevention, Rena Sheck. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right. So, Mayor Ginther, we want to start with you. And Mm -hmm. we heard your State of the City address and you outlined a number of initiatives and you talked about your track record. What are the next steps? Well, safety is going to remain our top priority moving forward. And our comprehensive approach has shown some great results. Uh, We've had Homicides dropped by 33%, the biggest drop of any big city in the country. And we think it's been because of our comprehensive approach on prevention, intervention, and enforcement. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're excited about Director Shack helping to lead the start of our Office of Violence Prevention so we really can focus on prevention and intervention uh, as a city and as a community. We believe prevention, intervention, and enforcement is going to help us become the safest big city in the country. And so just to follow up, you gave us the- statistic there. People who tune in and watch us on the news, we are talking about crime, it seems, every day, whether it's Mm -hmm. a Kia or a Hyundai being stolen or a shooting. I mean, what can you offer in terms of some tangible ways to address what appears to be rising crime in Columbus? It's actually going down, and when you look at our rates compared to the other big cities of the country, uh, we we see those numbers, uh, and we're proud of the work that police is doing. We think there's even more that can be done in prevention and intervention but this comprehensive approach matters. So we're funding record numbers of officers going through the academy this year. And by the end of next year, we'll have more police officers on the street than ever before in our city's history. But we can't police our way out of the crime that we're seeing. If we want to become the safest big city in America, we need somebody like Director Shack leading our prevention and intervention efforts and engaging the entire community. And let me just follow up um, mm-hmm. before I move on to um, Director Shack. You were talking about uh, the police department. Have you thought about, um, there was a state lawmaker, a couple of them, who said maybe we should lower the age for minimum requirement to be a police officer. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I'm I'm torn. Uh, I'm interested in the conversation. I do believe that, uh, you know, with a certain amount of age comes a certain level of maturity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think about the difference between an 18-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 25-year-old. I mean, we give officers incredible power. Mayors, governors, and presidents do not have the power to stop somebody, 
to question somebody, to take away their freedom, and ultimately take away their life. That's a huge amount of power that we give our officers, and that comes with great responsibility. And so, uh, interested in the conversation, uh, obviously there are cities all over the country that are trying to get more folks into law mm-hmm. enforcement, mm-hmm. Uh, but we got to make sure we're getting the right folks at the right time in their lives mm-hmm. if they're really going to serve and protect everybody in the community. All right, Director Shek. Yes. Prevention in a big city like Columbus. First of all, congratulations, and why did you say yes to this position? Thank you. Well, when the mayor asks, you don't say no. So, (laughs) (laughs) No, but truthfully, the reason I said yes was because I've dedicated my entire career so far to this point to trying to help this very issue. Uh, The last 10, 12 years I've been involved in the criminal justice system, working in criminal defense Mm -hmm. as a Franklin County public defender. And in that time, aside from dealing with somebody's legal case, what you do, the majority of your time is help connect them to resources. So really helping people here in Columbus connect to the resources that they need to either not further commit crime or to try to help prevent them from committing crime in the first place. And so that's something that I'm absolutely passionate about. I've devoted my career to it, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited to continue that career in this in this respect. In my opinion, prevention really looks like this agency helping to coordinate all city anti-violence programming to begin with, mm-hmm. and then we hope to um, build relationships with our community, our community-based organizations, our nonprofits, our members of the community who are just trying to do this work themselves so that we're all on the same page. We're aligning strategies and we're going forth together. And I think that that will help us not only to be not be duplicative in areas, mm-hmm. to make sure that we're spreading out resources evenly and hitting all of those facets that cause crime in the first place. And when you look at crime, mm-hmm. and renowned criminologist David Kennedy has been working on this with us through the group violence intervention, we know that it's just under 500 folks in this community that are committing about 50 percent of the violence. So these are folks that are involved in illegal gangs, you know, drug activity, those types of things. And so it's a very, very small number of folks. Uh, But it means that we need to have the best prevention and intervention efforts to make sure that number of folks committing violent crime doesn't grow. And ultimately, how do we get those folks off the street? How do we get those guns off the street? How do we de-escalate, you know, some of the violence that's taking place amongst gangs? And so that's where prevention and intervention efforts are so critically important. We're going to continue to make funding the police department a number one priority. Chief Bryan is doing an incredible job building police community relations. We're going to continue to invest in staffing for her. But we believe that we can realize our vision of becoming the safest big city in the country if our prevention and intervention efforts are coordinated, aligned, and strategically invested. Okay, so the last question I want to ask you then along that lines: is it going to be six months before we see an action plan or something happen or a year? How does that look for us, we have to start by hiring staff, and so I think the next three to six months is really going to be focused on that administrative functioning, making sure that we're building the right team. Um, but where we will begin from day one, once the doors are open, is doing an inventory of exactly all the programming that we have going on in the city. So within our city departments, and then moving outward to those rings, those community-based organizations and other community members, nonprofits, the like, to really figure out what 
what do we have? What does the landscape look like right now? You're going to see this with the after-school programming we're expanding at the request of Columbus City Schools, particularly for middle school students. Uh, really a big need for, for the school district, and we're stepping up to help out with that. Obviously, Director Shack's going to be involved with that work as well. Okay. Certainly what we're going to see this summer, mm-hmm. you know, for summer programming, summer youth employment, but we really want that programming and employment to last throughout the school year, not just in the summertime. You know, making sure a lot of our kids are doing great things. And we want to lift up and celebrate them Mm -hmm. and continue to offer more opportunities up. But for kids that aren't on the right track, you know, we're going to be focused on intervention and ultimately enforcement Mm -hmm. uh, because we need to keep our community safe. All right. So we thank you for joining us. Thank you. And we will check back with both of you in three to six months. And you're on the campaign trail, so we'll find you too. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thanks Thanks for coming in. Now, the mayor's entire address is 14 pages long. Crime did take up some four pages of that speech, but there are many other points highlighted in his plan for the city and how he intends on implementing it. We've posted his state of the city in its entirety to 10TV.com. More pressure was put on Norfolk Southern as new details are shared about the train derailment causing the evacuation of East Palestine, Ohio. In its hearings, it's clear there's a bipartisan consensus that rail safety must be addressed. Lawmakers heard from several people, including an East Palestine mother who fears for her family's health and the future of her home. Tracy Townsend shares her message. I'm here to put a face on this disaster. Misty Allison traveled from East Palestine to describe what her community is facing in the aftermath of the derailment. I could see a huge fireball from my driveway. My seven-year-old has asked me if he is going to die from living in his own home. She told lawmakers she fears for their health and that it's not going to be an easy recovery. This preventable accident has put a scarlet letter on our town. People don't want to come here. Businesses are struggling. Our home values are plummeting. Even if we wanted to leave, we couldn't. Who would buy our homes? Since the train derailed, Ohio's U.S. senators have united in a bipartisan effort to enforce tougher regulations. They compromise safety, cut costs to boost profits. The communities along their route be damned. Senators grilled Norfolk Southern's CEO on what went wrong. Why did the second hot box reading not trigger action? Senator, my understanding is that that second reading was still below our alarm threshold. Alan Shaw says he supports safety reforms like increased training and phasing out older railway cars, but stopped short of other commitments. Will you commit to supporting legislation requiring at least two-person crews on all freight trains? Senator, we'll, we'll commit to using research and technology to ensure the railroad operates safely. Governor Mike DeWine also testified this week from the small town. It was their train, their tracks, their accident, they're responsible for this tragedy. And is pushing for accountability. I urge the Senate and House to swiftly act to improve the safety, the safety of our railroads. Norfolk Southern must do everything in its power to put everything back as it was in East Palestine before 8.55 Friday, February 3rd. Tracy Thompson reporting there. The majority of the state congressional delegation introduced a bill that aims to improve rail safety. This is in addition to similar legislation being considered in the Senate. The bills nearly mirror each other. 
However, the House bill doesn't require a two-person crew requirement like Senators Vance and Brown have proposed. Proposed requirements would also include more detectors that watch for overheating train axles. There's also funding for training first responders on hazardous materials and research for conducting and constructing safer rail cars that transport those materials. Now, testimony revealed found many of the 300 first responders who were at the scene were ill-equipped and untrained to fight the massive chemical fire. Facing scrutiny, the railroad opened a new training center along the tracks in northern Ohio. As chief investigative reporter Bennett Haberly reports, railroad says the railroad says this isn't about optics. Sometimes they rip off the ends of it. This train carrying first responders is meant to provide them with an education, part of a series of safety sessions Norfolk Southern is offering nearly two months after a train carrying toxic materials derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. Facing criticism over what happened, I asked a spokesman for the company this. Did they learn worst-case scenario things? Because one of the lessons that came out of East Palestine were some of the fittings melted, and there, were, there was confusion over what was actually in the tank cars because the placards, the diamond placards, melted. So uh, do you guys go over that as well? Um, yeah, so so obviously the training is meant to be a training. It's, it's not a stunt. It's, we want to bring these guys out here to, to learn what could happen on the railroad and how to respond to it. We go through a number of different scenarios. Areas. And, and in addition to that, obviously, with regard to these policy and what happened there, we continue to work with the NTSB, the FRA, to identify what we can do to make Norfolk Southern an even safer railroad. Norfolk Southern says this is just the start. Those in attendance got an up-close education on tank cars, valves, and the use of an app called Ask Rail that can help identify what's being hauled in the event of an emergency. Uh, it's a whole different situation on February 3rd, so... We wouldn't have been able to do what we learned today anyhow. Deputy Chief Rick Gorby with the East Palestine Fire Department was hesitant to talk about the events surrounding the derailment and their response. While he did say the training was valuable and that other fire departments should attend, he stopped short of saying that the app would have helped them that day. Why so? It was just too big of an incident. We knew what we had pretty quick off the get-go, so that's when we backed off. I also spoke to a firefighter from Cardington who told me he found this training to be helpful as well. You know, if anything were to happen out there, we kind of want to be prepared, uh, make sure we have the knowledge available to make good decisions if, if something were to happen like that. Right. Do you, is it more more of, more of on your mind since East Palestine happened? Uh, I would say, yeah. I mean, it's not really something we thought about <laughs> until, you know, all these started popping up around Ohio and it's, you know, it possibly could happen at home. So, Ohio's two U.S. senators have pushed for advanced notification for first responders on what's being hauled through their towns. Norfolk Southern says this event is just the start in a series. They have plans to build a permanent facility, although there's no timeline or exact location that's been determined. In Bellevue, Ohio, Bennett Haberly, 10TV News. Still ahead this morning, the push for more AEDs in Ohio schools. I think that that is the jump that we need. We need to be holding our um, our leaders and our schools and our leaders and our athletic um, facilities accountable, um, and it, it needs to be a requirement. We explore what the bill would require of school districts. Also, could there be even more sweeping rules in the near future? And why the company at the center of the state's massive racketeering scandal wants to repurchase a power plant it was forced to sell. 
Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Before I was adopted, I felt like nobody wanted me. I felt like my life was already over. At a certain age, they don't want you. You're troubled and stuff. Even if I wanted to be adopted, who would adopt a 17-year-old? Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared. I was lost, and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. It's hard to forget these moments of fear and uncertainty when Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin went into cardiac arrest and was then resuscitated right there on the field. Even after his remarkable recovery, Hamlet still awaiting doctors to clear him to return back to his football career. But one thing is certain, what took place in Cincinnati is creating conversations about the importance of AEDs nationwide, including right here in Ohio. It's also sparking a discussion about when athletes can play again. Testimony was heard for a bill that would add new requirements for AEDs. Right now, the state requires education about sudden cardiac arrests to protect athletes at youth, middle, and high school levels. The proposed laws would go a step further, requiring AEDs in all schools and recreation facilities. It would also create protocols for students to return back to athletic events, even if they are known to be at risk. Teddy B first explored the lack of mandates for AED in other locations last month. From your pharmacy to your place of worship where you pump gas, none of them are mandated to have one. Here's Tenty B's Kevin Landers. One, two, three. The scariest part of sudden cardiac arrest. So you want to keep your elbows locked. Is that every minute a person doesn't get a shock from an AED or automated external defibrillator. Attach pads to bare skin. Their chance of survival is reduced 7 to 10 percent. The defibrillator is what's actually going to reverse the cause of the cardiac arrest. CPR is buying us time and giving us a viable patient for that defibrillator to restore that normal cardiac rhythm. Also called a doctor in a box because it tells an untrained person how to use it, this life-saving machine Sorry. wasn't there when Jill Hutchinson father van and he never got to meet my kids collapsed inside this Lowe's store in May of 2001 I believe that it it would have made a difference possibly in my father's life um, I was actually told that at the hospital but between the time the squad got there and the time that he got to the hospital he was pronounced dead nearly 30 states have mandates that AEDs be placed in specific businesses not Ohio Sarah Bops teaches CPR and AED training across the state I train pharmacists for five different major companies, and not one of them have AEDs in all of them. She believes it's time Ohio mandates AEDs. I'm actually trying to get in front of somebody in the state of Ohio that can recognize that there should be a bill that mandates that there should be an AED in any company that, has, that deals with pharmaceuticals in Ohio. 
period. When a woman was shot to death at this strip mall on Sunbury Road in January, an employee at this urgent care told us there wasn't an AED in the store, so we ran next door to the Kroger to get one. Places like the BMV, places of worship, even schools aren't mandated to have an AED. One in 50 schools is going to experience a sudden cardiac arrest event each school year. Nurse Sarah McGraw-Timmis is the health coordinator for Lancaster City Schools. Here, every school has three AED which she says is unusual. Do you think that should change? Yes, I do. I think every school should be furnished with AEDs. Mary Newman is the president of the Sudden Cardiac Foundation. Making AEDs uh, mandated in large in places of large gatherings, it's absolutely essential. She says when someone provides CPR immediately, survival increases 30%. And when people use an AED immediately... It goes up to 50%. The high cost of an AED was once a deterrent for many to own one. Experts say not anymore. If you can afford an iPhone, you can probably afford an AED. Step one. Cardiologist Dr. Michael Jolly has seen firsthand the power of an AED. There are many times patients have a cardiac arrest and we shock them and they're, they're back to being fine. He says many public places do have them, but more are needed. Would it be great if there was a, a law that would kind of mandate as a building code or something if X number of people were here? I think it'd be great. Um, these things save lives. As for Jill Hutchinson, who lost her 50-year-old father to sudden cardiac arrest. I wonder what if. What if her dad would have been in the store with an AED? In 2019, Lowe's made a commitment to put AEDs in every store. Hutchinson hopes her heartbreaking story will prompt other stores to do the same. Because you never know where, you never know when, and you never know what time that someone you love or someone you care about um, could have a sudden cardiac event. And having something like this on site could save their life. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. What's next for the former Speaker of the House convicted in a massive money scheme? That's next. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. The company at the center of the state's major racketeering scandal may be trying to repurchase a West Virginia coal plant. It's spun off as part of the investigation. That's according to a new report by our CBS station in Charleston. First Energy sold the Pleasance Power Station as part of what federal prosecutors said was the largest money laundering scandal in state history. The plant is across the Ohio River from Marietta. Prosecutors say former Speaker of the House Larry Householder orchestrated a scheme with money paid by First Energy through dark money groups. The funding helped him to be elected as Speaker. He then passed a billion-dollar bailout bill, the vast majority of which benefited the power company. Pleasance is scheduled to be closed by June, but the West Virginia governor and members of the West Virginia legislature are mounting a push for First Energy to buy it back. The state's governor says it's about jobs and keeping power costs down. I mean, when it really boils down to it, I don't know the exact number, but there's 155 or 60, you know, employees at the plant. 
that are direct employees, but think of the coal miners. The jobs that are at the plant are not the only people that will be affected by what's being proposed here. Um, hundreds of thousands of Mon Power and Potomac Edison customers across the state will also be affected through having higher electric rates, higher bills. The state's utility regulator this year ordered First Energy to submit a report on the possibility of buying the plant. And a quick mention about the former House Speaker Larry Householder and the former Republican Chairman Matt Borges. Both face 20 years in prison. They are free until being sentenced. The judge is awaiting a report he will use to determine the length of their sentences that will likely happen this summer. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm Clay Gordon. Tracy Townsend returns next week. Have a great rest of your Sunday. That's again Clay Gordon, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy with a look at what you can see this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning, I'm Tracy Townsend. Coming up on Face the State, there's a new push to kill the death penalty in Ohio. We'll take a look at who's pushing it forward and who's pushing back. Police problems with recruitment. Ohio lawmakers consider changing the age requirements to help with hiring and filling the vacancies. And two months since the train derailment in East Palestine. I'm talking with Governor Mike DeWine about the state's commitment to ensuring safety and health now and into the future. Plus, the lessons learned for other communities where trains travel. We'll see you today at 1130 for Face the State. There's a place to share the joy of your team winning it all. And a place to share a laugh about skiing and taking a fall. There's a place to share photos of pets or singing in the choir. Or the time you ate a pepper and your mouth was on fire. But we could all be better at sharing how we're feeling inside. 76% of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health. When you share, you're not alone. Ask about your company's emotional health benefits. Visit heart.org slash sharing. Brought to you by the American Heart Association. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Earlier this week, I had a chance to talk with the mayor of Athens, Steve Patterson, while he was in Washington attending a National League of Cities event. Good morning, Mayor. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I am well. And you? Good. Uh, You're in Washington, National League of Cities. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, I'm here in Washington, D.C., as you said. The National League of Cities um, Congressional City Conference is taking place right now, the 26th through the 28th. And, uh, you know, it's something that I serve on the board of directors for NLC, as well as uh, have some leadership roles on the Race and uh, race Equity and Leadership Council, uh, which is one of several uh, constituency groups that NLC has. But, you know, what an amazing lineup that they have had here at uh, the Congressional City Conference with people like Gene Sperling coming, who is the White House American Rescue Plan coordinator and senior advisor to the president. Uh, John Podesta spoke yesterday uh, as the senior advisor on clean energy and innovation and implementation. Uh, And then there was a fascinating meeting, informative, um, to where there was a National League of Cities rail roundtable to where we had some of the uh, administrators from several major railroad companies um, sitting in a room with us, uh, us being NLC leaders, um, city managers, mayors, city council members, uh, and in particular in the state of Ohio, um, as we're all well aware, the disaster that took place rail-related in uh, East Palestine 
Um, and so that was a, a great meeting to have to where not only voicing concerns, but asking questions um, that have to do with future safety of our rail transit um, and rail freight, more importantly, as it's running through um, our cities and villages, uh, not only in the state of Ohio, but across the nation. Yeah, that East Palestine thing sure is interesting because that could have happened in literally just about any town in Ohio. And I'm sure that that you and, and your uh, council members have had to have had that in the back of your minds during meetings since that disaster. That's that's accurate. Um, you know, when I look at the fact that we have a Norfolk Southern rail line that runs not only through the city of Athens, but it runs through probably one of our more precious resources, which is our wellhead protection area, the city of Athens. Um, we get our clean drinking water from the Hawking Valley Aquifer, which runs anywhere from 10 to 40 feet below ground surface. And with that rail line running through there, um, certainly has uh, the citizens of Athens concerned uh, and uh, wanting to continue to address what are the safety precautions moving forward when it comes to freight. And it's, it's, it is uh, all freight that runs through the city of Athens on the uh, Norfolk Southern line. It is uh, leased by a rail, short rail line out of Charleston, West Virginia, Kanawha River Rail, um, and so one of the questions that I posed is what is the level of oversight that the rail line or the rail owners, the property owners, have when it comes to uh, their subleases that are leasing that rail? Um, and so a lot of great information came out of that. You know, and but you're correct in that when I look at that particular rail line that runs through many small villages uh, as well as cities um, heading north um, that there is concern. Uh, but again, there's concern across the United States. There were individuals who represent cities and villages in Colorado, California, um, Washington. I mean, the, the room was full. Let me just put it that way, uh, to where there's uh, concern, a lot of questions being asked, but also just wanting to know what are the protective measures that they're looking at moving forward? And what we heard from uh, Amit Bose, who's the administrator for the Federal Rail uh, Federal Railroad Administration, is that they have been hard at work uh, looking under the, the uh, certainly uh, with the support of Secretary Buttigieg uh, of Transportation, um, trying to make sure that we are being proactive in making sure that there are things in place to protect communities against what the, uh, the unfortunate disaster um, and devastation, devastation that East Palestine has experienced. Talking with Athens Mayor Steve Patterson. I was talking earlier with uh, one of the Cleveland City Councilmen who was there, and he was talking to me about how housing and affordable housing is a big issue in Cleveland. And I'm curious, in a place like Athens where you've got a relatively smaller city, but a huge university plopped down in the middle of it. Uh, that certainly must present unique problems, and I'm wondering how the housing is doing when when it comes to that. It's. Uh, I would contend that you're you're talking about an issue that is affecting cities and villages across the United States. Speaking of Athens, um, yes, uh, an affordable housing 
The affordable housing issue is real and present in the city. Uh, we see some opportunities uh, in front of us with um, a rather large building that the university owns, which is the former Athens Asylum Estate or compound, if you will, uh, the uh, Ohio or Athens Mental Hospital. Very uh, cool was, looking building, by the way. It's a great <laughs> building. Um, and we affectionately call it the Ridges. Sure. And uh, that building unto itself is about 700,000 square foot of space. Uh, some of it is being used, but there is a the majority of the space is not currently being used. And so we are exploring through what's called a new communities authority um, of uh, making sure we can posture that facility and, and the grounds, the 7,000 acres of, upon which it sits, you know, for housing. Um, potentially in the future, it could um, provide the opportunity for 700 housing units, uh, some of those within the old Kirkbride building that you're familiar with, which is a gorgeous building. Um, elder housing would be um, in the surrounding campus structures that exist or new structures. So, uh, but but to your point, you know, we're um, a city of uh, 24,000, and of that 24,000, I would say that the um, easily four-fifths of our housing stock is rental units in the city. Um, wow. Of course, catering to Ohio University yeah. uh, and the student body, especially juniors and seniors and graduate students, uh, juniors and seniors live off campus. Freshmen, sophomores live on campus. And again, that does pose challenges when it comes to affordable housing. Um, when we're looking at potential new faculty or staff at Ohio University or people wanting to um, you know, live in Athens who are working at some of our larger companies that exist in Athens. So it, it uh, much like Cleveland, it's certainly an issue that we're experiencing in Athens, but we, again, see some opportunity on the horizon. And then we also have green space that is um, available for development, but it's making sure that we have the right tools in place. Things like um, having uh, um, tax incremental financing opportunities for new neighborhood development um, that uh, we are using to try and encourage development of our currently unutilized uh, green spaces that are on kind of the periphery of the city. So there's opportunity for sure. Uh, it's just making sure we can find the right developers to come in who are willing to invest knowing that, you know, Athens is truly an amazing place in the state of Ohio. Uh, and I would contend uh, among the most beautiful places in the state of Ohio with the Hawking Hills and all of the outdoor recreation opportunities that are available through things like the Bailey's trail system, mountain bike trail running, which in the not too distant future will uh, have the final uh, build out of the what will be 88 miles of purpose built and continuous trails uh, in the Wayne National Forest, but right in the city of Athens's backyard. Well, if you could turn that area into housing, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that that would be a tremendous expense. But at the same time, you'd have to weigh that against building all new. So that, that that's an interesting project. It's a fascinating project. It is, Dave. Outstanding. Uh, anything else you'd like to add, Mayor? No, other than uh, I have to say the National League of Cities really opens up those doors of engagement when it comes to uh, engaging to 
secretaries of you know President Biden, uh, Vice President Harris's administration. Uh, but I just had a meeting not too long ago this morning with um, Jennifer Garrison, who is the chief policy director for um, the Appalachian Regional Commission's co-chair, Gail Manchin, um, and uh, exploring some opportunities there. So there's, it's, that's the beauty of NLC, is being able to, to not only listen to um, federal leadership, but also being able to have one-on-one engagement with federal leadership. So it's been an amazing experience. It's my eighth year of engaging. Uh, I have learned something new every single time I come to the National League of Cities conferences. That's great. Uh, again, uh, Athens Mayor Steve Patterson, thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Well, thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM at 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.